Welcome back to That's So Second Millennium. This is episode 46, the second part of our interview with Daniel Henshaw. So today we're going to go into some more topics on the intersection between medicine and faith, and where a secular mindset in the context of the science, or if you will, engineering of medicine, really runs out of steam, and we need the perspective of something outside, like faith, in order to determine what we should do with our newfound powers. I hope you enjoy it. Can we take, I mean, shift gears slightly for a moment, sort of give us give us a sort of picture of your, your life? I mean, you sort of, you've talked about that you and your wife have come to a point in your development, but, but what was sort of the earlier, if we go back to childhood, your adolescence, your time in college and medical school, what was your path through life and faith that's led you to this point? Well, it's a strange thing. I mean, I... I, I... <laughs> I was reflecting on this to a certain extent when I was a, a fellow at, at the uh, Notre Dame Institute for Advanced Studies because I, a lot of the people there in the organization, to a large extent, is run by historians. And I, mm-hmm. as a kid, I always thought, well, I'd like to be a historian. I really liked it. Huh. And so this was like a, a dream, you know, like getting paid to go into a candy shop and just be there. It was wonderful <laughs> to be around, yeah. to, to, to you know, because what happened, well, you know this, I mean, from your own experience in academics, you, mm-hmm. you end up having to be, uh, identified. You have a stamp on your forehead at some point. Oh, you're part of this tribe. Oh, yeah. And, you're part of and this you have sub-tribe. To, yeah. You have to, yeah. And then you become part of a sub-tribe. And then you have to, you know, do all the necessary things to get funding and so forth to get promoted and all, all yes. of those rituals. Yes. And what it does is it narrows and narrows further your, your whole perspective of reality. And to have something like the NDIS uh, mm-hmm. is a real treasure because it, it, it breaks that mold. It, it allows people to kind of go back to a, an older image of, of the university, which is one in which people come together, uh, maybe from different backgrounds. That's that's wonderful. Uh, but also be able to explore any question, you know, that, uh, that, uh, that a serious, thoughtful person may want to ask. And then offer whatever they have from their own knowledge or, or you know, empirical experience and so forth, uh, to, to that question. And that, and that, that was just, uh, infinitely valuable. And so, uh, a turning point for me though is, was, uh, a trip that I, I participated in when I was about 13 years old. My father was a, an academic physician and he was teaching as a, huh visiting professor in uh, Peru at their at the oldest medical school actually in the Western Hemisphere. Okay. And and uh it was an exchange program and and we uh my sister and I and, and I went along with, with our parents and and I'd never seen human poverty and suffering on such a level before. Yeah. And in a lot of the third world countries the, the wealthy actually live in the in the in the center of the city. Uh, and the and the impoverished live outside in the, in the suburbs, ironically. Yeah. Yeah. And and so we went. We, we spent some time. Some of the the uh, medical trainees took us out. And we went to one of these large suburban slums, and it was actually uh, called the City of God, the Ciudad de Dios. Mm-hmm. And I remember it had about sixty thousand people, and they were all living uh, with no running water. They they lived in cardboard shacks. Yeah. Uh, they were gouged for this sort of not very clean water that would be offered periodically. Yeah. And the only thing they had, the, the only 
joy that that whole community had was a church, a Catholic church that was built in the in the in the kind of the center of the of the slum, and that was the thing they took great pride and joy in, because uh, uh, they all they all owned it in a sense, and yeah. you know it was, it was part of their community. But I, having you know grown up in the highly developed, highly spoiled environment of being of an American kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to go there and see and smell and touch and experience all of this, I, I felt like coming back, I, like I had to do something, you know, to, that would be practical to help. And, that, and that's what uh, initially attracted me to want to be uh, a doctor. Mm-hmm. And then later, I, and then shortly after that, I, I, uh, I realized I actually like sciences. Uh, but I had not had really any real exposure much yet to science. Uh, and I took a biology course and then chemistry and, and, and I really enjoyed chemistry especially. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, kind of then I was on a mission to become a, do- a doctor. Right. Yeah. And then somewhere in there I, I got, I got off into the uh, academic part, which I'm not sure because I, I, my original vision was to go and help in the third world. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so I ended up spending a lot of time in academics, which I yeah. guess it was all meant to be because later when I did have a chance to go back and try to give back in the third world, uh, including in Eastern Africa and then, and then now more recently in, in, uh, in the Middle East and in, and in uh, Eastern Europe, um, mm-hmm. having the academic credentials and having something to be able to teach and so forth has been really helpful. Mm-hmm. But, but I, I, uh, what really drew me initially was the suffering. And, and then, so it's sort of kind of like been a full circle to go back to that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think the other thing about, from a religious standpoint, uh, you know, just say this about my journey. I, the, my wife and I both, uh, were raised as Seventh day Adventists. And, and it's a wonderful, one of the things that's very nice about, about that, uh, faith is that they're very, uh, have a very strong commitment to help in the, the poor in the third world and yeah uh and they, they have a strong uh, commitment to learning the bible which has been really, was helpful for me i think and i'm very thankful for that mm-hmm. uh we both went to their medical school in loma linda uh, uh at where's she, that located uh, it's in uh california it's between los angeles and palm springs it's uh, okay it's a very uh Actually, they're, they're, uh, grow- they're now having to rebuild the, the university hospital be- to meet the, the current quakes, uh, earthquake standards. So earthquake standards, yeah. 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 So they're building one of the most expensive hospitals right now in the world. But I bet they are. Anyway, yeah, because yeah, the requirements are so are so uh, they have to be able to the building has to be able to move I think a foot or more in each direction. That's a that's a substantial amount of earth movement, but yes, yeah, that can happen. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that so so that that kind of background and, and the motto of the university of medical school was to make man whole. So all of that was a, a good foundation for us. The problem the problem I had with the with the the Adventist faith was again the history part of me. It's just like yeah, I remember my mother being very distressed because I, as a teenager I said, you know, I can't believe that the church that there wasn't something about. More to the church than an organization that was founded in the 1840s in the United States, right? And yes. and so I told her at the time, uh, to her horror, that oh, well, I'm I'm going to look for the historic church. Yeah. 
and uh, eventually through some detour, I spent I spent some time as a oh more maybe a dozen years as an Anglican, uh, but eventually uh, mm-hmm. had to make a decision either to go toward Rome or or toward the Eastern Orthodox Church. I ended up uh, going toward Eastern Orthodoxy, mm-hmm. but realizing that that, that the church that the that, you know. We have to go, we have to be connected back to to a church that that connects all the way back to the, uh, to the apostolic apostles. tradition. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and and so, uh, so that's been part of uh, a very a very strong part of uh, of our vocation. And what's interesting though is is all of this kind of commitment to holistic uh, approaches to caring for the human person, of course. All of this you know, emerges out of the early Christian tradition. I mean, they, mm-hmm. there was certainly a, and it was nourished by by Judaism, but but uh, so much of what is uh, really at the core of the hospice and palliative medicine tradition is fundamentally Christian and uh, yeah. unabashedly so. And and, yeah. and uh, it doesn't mean that that you know a good Hindu or, or Buddhist or Muslim can't also have a very uh, powerful kind of hospice work, mm-hmm. but I, I, I challenge, they, they need to be challenged to define that, those, the, those kinds of programs within the context of their own, uh, faith traditions. And, and what unfortunately has happened in, in, uh, since the, since the time of the kind of first modern hospice movement, uh, mm-hmm. in the mid 20th century, is that the the spirituality of hospice has become watered down and is is very thin and, uh, yeah. and, and secularized. Yeah. If you look at the uh, Saunders, for example, uh, who is who died in 2005, and who's really credited with founding kind of the first really modern uh, hospice in, in many respects in the 20th century at St Christopher's in London, it was opened in mm-hmm. 1967. She she was she went through a conversion experience. Uh, she mm-hmm. she was uh, an atheist as a young woman, uh, had a dramatic conversion experience about the same age and roughly the same time as C.S. Lewis did. Okay. Uh, and was at one point going to form an order of Anglican nuns, you know, to uh-huh. to, to promulgate <laughs> her work. But but her whole concept of total pain, you know, thinking of suffering as the physical, psychological, social, and spiritual elements, yeah. you know, these different uh, elements or dimensions of the person. Uh, this all came from her own bedside observations and, and, and were clearly informed by her Christian understanding of the, of the person. Uh, subsequent generations now have just, uh, unfortunately, uh, of a lot of my colleagues in the field have, uh, tried to basically turn it into some kind of a, you know, new age kind of mushy stuff that, that really, yeah. uh, it doesn't. It, it doesn't. It's not three dimensional or four, four dimensional anymore. It's just sort of, well, we're simply take care of symptoms. You know, we 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 or we yeah, we want to help people feel comfortable, and and right. so you can have people who uh, revere her in some sense, but they don't understand that she would be turning in her grave if they if if she right. knew that they're advocating, for example. Uh, killing people as as a as a, a reasonable way to address human suffering, right? And un- right. unfortunately, the uh, our professional organization, in the United States, 
in the early in the mid 90s, they came out with a uh, an unequivocal statement. This is, of course, these were people who are often informed by a spiritual tradition, you know, and, and more of a Christian background. At that time, the organization came out and said, "There is no way that that, that physician assisted suicide or active euthanasia are are, are acceptable." Uh, in, in terms of what we're trying to do in hospice and palliative medicine, these are these are uh, are antithetical to it. And and then and then and they're more you know over the next ten to twenty years they can start to get mushy about it. And their most recent statement, uh, to my horror, uh, has been to basically say we take a study neutrality. Oh, yeah. And and so you have a. a uh, again, this is, re- reflects the thin intellectual kind of foundations of, of morality in, in the postmodern age. Yeah. Uh, we have basically bright, educated people who uh, look at a situation and say, well, gosh, if, if it's legal, then it's moral. And, right. And I Which look is at that quicksand. and say, this is a, that's a pretty sad statement to make. Yeah. Yeah. So I can I I for example think of the 250 years of American history when slavery was legal. Right. Does that make it right. moral? Right. We yeah. fought a war where about 700,000 American citizens died over this question. Yes. So that's exactly. so that's really and then and then I you know I remember giving a lecture uh, about the suffering and so forth and, and to undergrad you know at University of Michigan they're supposed to be pretty bright. Mm-hmm. Uh, 20 years, 20 years ago, and brought yeah. up the issue. I said, I, I can remember a day uh, when uh, Roe versus Wade was, you know, before Roe versus Wade, when abortion was illegal. Yeah. And yeah. and and uh, and then you know, one of the students came up and he was just very desperate. He said, "Well, but it's legal. It's legal. It must be moral now." So uh, <laughs> you need to think about. So yeah. what was what was so the morality changes with the you know. Yeah. With some Supreme Court decision, right? So, so anyway, this is the kind of this is the kind of weird, uh, shallow thinking that that affects us in so many different ways, and people are so um, enamored, I guess, of 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 the you know the uh, social media and so forth that that they they throw out they throw out reactions. They're reacting rather than thinking. Yeah, uh, and so this just this just exacerbates the the problem when you have phenomena like Twitter and so forth, right. and even and even and even you know high high officials in our country using these kinds of tech uh, right. technologies right. In, in in really irresponsible ways. Yeah, and and to be fair, that's officials with an S. There's more than one. Uh. Oh yeah, no, no, no. It's absolutely it goes yeah. it goes across the whole political spectrum. I'm not. I, yeah. I, I, yeah, I'm not trying to make a political statement other than just to say, yeah, that's that's just know, where it, our politics across the board is today, and that's that's it's just, problematic. It's just better to, better to not have constant news feeds. It's better to okay, here's the news. Let's digest it. Let's think about it. What are the implications of right. this before we suddenly react? Right. Um, it's and, it's and unfortunately too sort of Twitter worthy, but you know, to think about what was our political dialogue in the 18th century? Well, you know, like the Federalist Papers. And of course, what is it today? Yeah. Well, it's you know, it's Twitter. Um, <laughs> that's not an improvement. Yeah. No, it's 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 a sad. It's an impoverishment. Yeah, yeah. 
at some point you actually have to stop and, and think about the questions. And, yeah. You know, we had, we have, I mean, that's, that's the thing. We have, we live in a political system where we have appointed to ourselves at least the authority en masse to, you know, to decide our leaders by a, you know, a certain complicated process, sociological process that we call getting nominated and getting elected. Um, but we have to, yeah, what, what are our responsibilities within that framework? Yeah, absolutely. No, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it, it's, a, it's a sad time. Um, you know, there's, there's a, uh, we're, 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 we're sometimes confusing technological prowess with being deeper and more thoughtful, and we're not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I my my project at, at the NDIS really it's trying to or it's, it, the book I'm writing on, on it is really an attempt to try to alert the the general populace to the possibility that even though there's so much polarization in our society, there we have one common thing that we can cling to that draws all of us together, and that is we're all going to die. And, yes. and not only and not only that that the vast majority of people, because we've crossed an inflection point at the beginning of the 21st century, where the vast majority of human beings will actually live long enough to experience the diseases of aging and die from those diseases. And so these are chronic illnesses associated with a lot of suffering. <clears throat> and of course, you know, in the rich countries, we'll have more means to try to fight them off and stave yeah. off the aging process. Uh, but but we'll see a lot of that uh, suffering going on in the poorer countries, and yeah. either ignore it, I guess, or or, or try to help them in some way. But yeah. but it's that it's that that's what I'm uh, kind of referring to in terms of this the, the using the theological term kenosis, which uh-huh. in the Greek Greek really has a sense of meaning depletion, impoverishment. Uh, and so you can think of it in its broadest context as applying across uh, each individual human person's uh, life trajectory, uh, not just in terms of their biological well-being, but in terms of all their relationships, all of, of their own uh, self-knowledge and so on, but also in terms of their relationships with others. And so then, and again, uh, trying to be very careful how I say this, but in terms of the ancient understanding of the political life, the, the human being is a is a political animal in the sense that we have relationships with other people in our community, mm-hmm. uh, and and so uh, there there's a uh, there's a brilliant uh, father of, of, of modern anatomic pathology, Rudolf Virchow, in the uh, mid mid to late 19th century uh, in Germany, who also really was one of the fathers of, of modern public health. And he made the comment once that, uh, that uh, let's see if I can make sure I can quote him properly here. Uh, the medicine is a social science and that politics is nothing but medicine on a grand scale. And, and so, <laughs> so if you think about that, I mean, then you really have a lot of people in the, in the political realm practicing, uh, doing you know, medical malpractice. Uh-huh. In, in, in this larger sense, you know, the, the, yeah. uh, and he took this very seriously. He was actually the leader of the political opposition to Otto von Bismarck, the Iron Chancellor. 
and, and, and tried to in, institute a lot of uh, 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 political reforms that were related to improving uh, health, reducing, uh, improving sanitation, uh, clean water, all of these kinds of things that, that now are often taken for granted, but but in in, uh, in the late 19th uh, century, definitely in, in not. In the late 19th century, yeah, it was quite an extraordinary thing as a, as a physician and academic who was also a member of the of the Bundestag, the German parliament. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so I mean that, so I try to take that image and then also this image of this holistic view of, of the human person Physical, psychological, social, and spiritual animal, uh, and 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 work with both of those in terms of the kenosis and, and how uh, the fact that we really do have limits, and if we had, if we can consciously accept the fact as individuals in conversation with each other, forgetting our differences and so forth, that we are limited. Uh, how would that influence our decisions about our own individual lives? How would we reprioritize what we're doing, both on yeah. a practical but also on a spiritual level? And then also in, in a society, you know, how, how would we, for example, rethink what our priorities might be in terms of health care? You know, the, the vast majority of, of NIH uh, research funding uh, is going primarily toward are targeted toward uh, diseases of aging, mm-hmm. and, and you know if you're if you're going to think about this, if, if you're really worried about age, the diseases of aging, wouldn't it make more sense to focus more of the effort on actually understanding what aging is itself, you right? Know, the, the sort of underlying phenomenon. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, I, I I use this <laughs> metaphor I think in a uh, in another podcast, but I think it works pretty well, and that's the you know the mythical creature of the Hydra, which. Hercules would attack one head, and then three heads would replace the head that was cut off. Yeah. I mean, see, so yeah, you you can keep attacking each of these diseases as if they're a head right. of a hydra. Right. But what you really need to do is try to understand what to do about the hydra, the beast itself. Yeah. And what what keeps what, sprouting these things? And most of my colleagues who do the primary aging research, I've never heard any of them speak more optimistically than to say that. Well, I think. We, we think, we hope that we can actually help people have a, a fairly healthy lifespan up to maybe 120 years. Mm-hmm. Not much beyond that. Yeah. No one will have a realistic conversation about the fact that we're limited. <laughs> we're not. Yeah. And, and then how do you, how would you redistribute, uh, effort? I mean, so it doesn't mean you can't be innovative, but you need yeah. to be innovative in a different way. In, innovative, you know, uh, in terms of, Thinking about how to use resources less aggressively. This idea, you know, part of all of the, the problem we have, and this, and again, I'm not trying to be political, but uh, but our whole political economy is driven by this idea that we must have continued and incessant growth, economic right. growth, right. and and how can we sustain that when when we have a finite number of resources uh, in this home we call Earth. I mean, we have True. to at some point be good stewards of, of what that entails, and and yeah. uh, I, I, and at the same time, obviously, uh, you know, we're, we can't be self righteous uh, about our you know greedy use of most of the resources in in the developed countries, and then tell all the other countries, well, you can't have anything 
uh, because right. you'll just you'll you'll make the work planet go down the tubes faster. Well, right. So so this is you know so the, all of this sort of conversation about responsibility about um, you know limits and so forth. I don't know how popular it's going to be, but I hope I can at least stimulate kind of a conversation about it. Yeah, yeah. It's it's it's, it's hopefully we keep talking about it until enough people see the obviousness of it that something <laughs> something changes in in culture related to it. But yeah, that's that's a hard uh, hard task to set oneself. Yeah, and I think from a religious standpoint, though, I think that that all of the major religious traditions are really uh, uh, not really in alignment with this uh, kind of crazy notion of, of unlimited growth. No. That's a, pro- that's a product, that's really a product of, of uh, unfortunately, of the Western Reformation, uh, mm-hmm. where, where economics got mixed up with God's blessings and sort of strange notion that, that God wants you to be wealthy and so forth. Yeah. That's yeah. certainly not the ancient tradition of the church, either east or west, where yeah. the expectation is, you know, our condition is a suffering one. And of yeah. course, that also resonates with the understanding, I think, in Buddhism and other, you know, more realistic kind of, this is yeah. what the world is. Yeah. Uh, this is a veil of sorrows, but, but there's also joy here. Yeah. We're not, we're not, uh, we're not trying to, you know, Somehow beat the odds and, and uh, uh, <laughs> uh, you know be the winners at the end or something. I, I, I when I was a fellow at, at uh, Scripps Institute in San Diego in the 1980s, a very common bumper sticker on cars you would see, uh, and it just horrifies me to still think about it. Would yeah. be the, it said that the the person with the most toys, the person who dies yeah. with the most toys wins. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's very, it's very American. It's just, That's very, yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. And of course, you could, it, it leads to, to amusing spin-offs, like my friend, the geologist, who has the same sticker only, it says, he who dies with the most rocks wins. Um, <laughs> a little bit yeah. less. Uh, a little less egregious. A little less egregious, yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, a, little, a little kinder to uh, to your fellow man. Not, not quite the same level of deprivation. Yeah, I mean, you know, then again, Thinking about things, you know, not wanting to get partisanly political, but to think about, you know, what is our desired end state? You know, what what do we as people of faith want the, you know, future state of the world to be, you know, however many decades it takes to get there? Um, I, I certainly think we would want the economic, you know, status and opportunities and access to, you know, the ability to get enough medical care to live a 60 or 80 or 100 year life, um, we'd want that to be pretty widely distributed, as widely distributed as possible. I would hope so. I would hope that we were, and, and, and rather than, rather than obsess, well, I need more than you, or, or, uh, but also be able to accept that when, when our, you know, when it's inevitable that we're not trying to pursue, uh, inappropriate kinds of rescue strategies that basically Make it right. impossible for someone else to flourish. Well, right. I'm sorry, we we don't have money to, you know, to to feed, you know, to to address your your poverty because we spent it all on so and so who thought they should have a right to live another six months, right? Or, you know, and they yeah. were and, and they and their life was miserable, but they did live. You know, yeah. In other words, 
prolonging yeah. a dying process. Yes. Yeah. That is that is the other side of it. I mean, yeah. That's that. There's a delicate balance to be struck there. At least from the outside, it sure seems that way. That delicate balance to be struck between, you know, the the whole question of well, you know, I my life my quality of life is going to be below X, so therefore I want someone to put me to death as painlessly as possible. And on the other hand, what you're talking about, you know, certainly having known um, the relative of a, of a good friend of mine who sort of went through that process of throwing, actually both at both at his wife and then at himself, you know, throwing every medical you know, alternative at, you know, the, the fatal illness that, you know, eventually struck both of them, eventually was could not yeah. be avoided. And um, it's so sad because e- either situation is destructive. One, you know, the, the pursuing all means to survive distracts you from preparing for, preparing for, for that, the inevitable. You know, and, if, yeah. and if you're in, if you're also, if you're a person of faith, our death is 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 the thing that we're actually here to prepare for. Yes. I mean, there's a very strong admonition that goes back in the West to the Ars Moriendi, the you know the uh, the art of preparing for death, and, and in Eastern traditions, you know, remember your death, think daily on yeah. your death. Yes. This, that isn't to be morbid. It's to keep you focused and in the moment and realize we don't know what's going to happen to us even this evening. Certainly. Not yeah. about tomorrow. So that yeah. we need to live this day to its fullest extent mm-hmm. in gratitude and, and, and responsibly, you know, as, as creatures. If, yeah. if, if we're people of faith. And if the, the person who says, well, I have my, you know, right to end my life, I, I, you know, obviously in a pluralistic society, I'm not going to say, no, you don't have your right to do that, but you don't have, but there's no reason, and, and in fact, it's it's perverse to insist that the medical profession be the executioner. That, right. I, that I find completely in a, in a unacceptable. Right. And certainly right. the Hippocratic tradition, which developed before Christianity was on the scene, yeah. the Hippocratic physicians acquired a level of trust in the general population mm-hmm. for one thing, because they didn't kill they didn't kill the unborn they didn't kill people even though they could have made money doing it because there were certainly physicians that would oh yeah if you want us to help you slit your vein you know your your wrist and and help yeah. you die because you're sick of life as a nice stoic uh mm-hmm. you, you yeah they can make a perfectly rational argument depending on wherever you start from yeah but if that's only if you're accountable to yourself if you're really accountable right. you know if it's not you know life is a gift to you and, you, and then every moment that we have, we, we have some accountability for it. And maybe the suffering that we experience, we need to do all we can to help our fellow human beings bear the suffering they have, you know, to help carry that with them, carry that for them as much as we can. And, and the fact is, I, I, I can't think of a patient I cared for over many years that I wasn't able to relieve their pain. You, and, you know, occasionally might have to sedate them, but the vast majority of the time I could relieve their pain so that they could then do the important things they needed to do at the end of life. Uh, but this, so the people who are usually asking for assisted suicide or euthanasia, it's not about uncontrolled pain. It's because I want, I'm losing control and I want out. I want, yeah. I want to be able to say when I'm going to die. Right. And, and, and I think that's, you know, part of really fully growing up as a mature human being is recognizing, again, this gets back to the kenosis. 
Yeah. We really aren't in control. No. That's it's no. an illusion. Control's an illusion. Yeah. We're, if, yeah. yeah. If, if we're if we're mortal creatures, we're on a trajectory. And just because you can say, well, I'm gonna, I'm you know, I'm on the conveyor belt and I'm gonna jump off the conveyor belt a little bit faster. So what did you prove by that? Absolutely no. nothing. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, that's that, I guess that's the the part I think is very sad. And again, uh, there is absolutely no justification to make the medical profession the execution. If they really want to pursue this to a national level, they need to create a you know another quasi profession, the, uh, yeah. the, the the kinder, gentler executioner. Right. And then, of course, that raises the absolutely absurd question. You have people, uh, you know, who are out advocating for having no capital punishment, except mm-hmm. for people who are done, you know, who, who are right. uh, terminally ill. Then we should right. we should execute and, all of them. And, <laughs> but, and the but, unborn. Whoo. Yeah. Yeah, and the unborn. You know, yeah. Anybody that's a, a nuisance, you know, or, right. or or they distress us, and we don't yeah. like to see your suffering, so we're going to end it. Yeah. Yeah. That would, that would be your logical. That would be your logical space on the Venn diagram would be a union of Jack Kevorkian, an abortionist, and, you know, an executioner. That's, yeah. Those are people engaged in philosophically the same activity. Yeah, it, it just, it, it's it's crazy. I mean, I, no, I, I had a patient once who, who uh, you know, I was going through my usual history taking and including a spiritual history and so forth, and mm-hmm. he had advanced lung disease and. He very proudly, he was obviously trying to tweak me. He said, you know what, I'm a member of the Hemlock Society, and I've got mm-hmm. nitrous oxide or something at home. When I, when I need to use it, I'm going to use it. Uh, mm-hmm. And I said, well, that, thank you for telling me that. My job is to help you n- never want to do that. You know, right. My job is to help you live well enough so that you're never even going to contemplate using that. Yeah, but but what he pointed out, I mean, what he demonstrated from my perspective is that the techniques, the, the, the technology to yeah. do this, you know, to self-destruct, has always been there. Yeah, but but there's something incredibly evil and perverse in our society that they want it to be come under the sanction of, of the medical that, that medicine has the power. I mean, this is yeah. incredibly arrogant, you know. To, yeah. And 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 I have medical colleagues who really want to push this. That we have the power of life and death, and we, yeah. and we want it, and, and that yeah. that is uh, it's yeah. first of all an illusion, and the second of all it's 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 just downright evil. Yeah. Um, but anyway, <laughs> sorry, yeah. I, I didn't get too much on. Oh no, that's that's I mean that's that's exactly that's exactly the sort of thing that uh, this this topic area. Uh, begs for to, to, to take that out and actually look at it. So I appreciate yeah. you uh, taking us on that, that journey to, to face that aspect of it again. This is you know a, a different side of the relationship between science and faith. What do we do with the you know the capabilities that science has you know uncovered for us? Medicine being kind of a sort of engineering where we apply the you know the the knowledge that we get from science and you know we we try to we try to accomplish different outcomes. Sometimes civil engineers build the building and it falls down, and sometimes you know doctors can't cure a patient. But we at least seem to have we at least, we at least have more influence. We don't have control, but it is true that we have more influence on things than our forebears did. What do we do with that power? Yeah, and the sad part of it is that we sometimes don't recognize that the the additional influence we have 
is is really being brought to bear at the wrong, the bad, you know, the, the circumstances aren't right and the timing is not right. And so if, if you really, uh, so it's very common in medicine to see somebody who, if you could step back and be dispassionate and say, this person's dying. Uh, but we're trained to say, oh, that, no, this person is really sick and we're gonna, we're gonna keep them alive. Mm-hmm. They're not gonna die on my shift. Right. And, and that's the insane aspect of it. So we, we, we end up doing, uh, exercises in, in futility that are cruel. And, and that, yeah. of course, when, when someone who is saying, I want control over my, my life and death, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and pushes for something like physician assisted suicide as, as an extreme solution to it, I have a little sympathy for them when they see that, you know, the, the sort of idea that this unthinking, uh, almost an apparent, an apparently almost non-compassionate or uncompassionate way of, of, of insisting we will keep you alive. Uh, when you're really what you're doing is prolonging a dying process. And so as you, as you mentioned earlier, it's a very, uh, subtle distinction, but a crucial one, uh, about what is the intent and, and what is the purpose of any, of any kind of intervention that we take. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we don't, uh, we can't, we can't cure death. No, no, we can't no, prevent it. it. We can't take it back once it's happened. That's, death is a metaphysical problem. Yes. And, and, and if you're, if you're a person of faith, God cures death. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, um, yeah. or, you know, you find some other new age explanation, but, but it's, yeah. it's not a, it's not a, uh, unfortunately, I, you know, uh, we of the medical profession need to kind of step back and realize with hopefully with a large dose of humility, we're treading in areas that are beyond uh, beyond mm-hmm. what we are, are capable of doing, uh, and only can cause more distress. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and that's where you know again, it's a, this is a frontier between science and faith, where we're really watching a branch of science, or if you will, engineering, reach the end of its ambit, and and really reach the point where that need we need to we need to go back and draw upon all of the philosophic traditions, you know, inside and outside Christianity, which are badly neglected today. You know, why would we why would we bother going and reading Chrysostom? Why would we bother going back and reading Aquinas or Augustine or Basil or or any of the other, you know, they they couldn't possibly have anything useful to say. Um, because unfortunately we've reached that point where, you know, to some extent we're so angry at Christianity for having been as hypocritical, you know, the Christian establishment, Christian clergy, um, I think in some ways we're watching five centuries of that playing out and, mm-hmm. and finally reaching, finally reaching a sort of, I don't know, I don't know, I, I don't know where the dead cat's going to bounce at. I think that's a, that's a dangerous thing to try to forecast how far, how far it could all go. Um, I guess we'll see. Yeah, it's, it's something that uh, should give us all pause to reflect and and, uh, and and meditate and pray over very seriously. So yeah. what what each of us can do as people of faith to to redress the balance. Yeah. yeah. And, and we need to and we need to be sympathetic with our our friends and neighbors who who think this other way because they they you know they the reaction you know 
there's always some truth in just about everything. You know, the, the, yeah. in the Eastern tradition, uh, sin has never been viewed as as uh, as as some kind of independent, having an independent existence of its own. It's always a distortion of the good. Mm-hmm. You know, good is the the good, the moral good is always reality, and sin mm-hmm. is is a, is an illusory distortion of reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But but there's always some element of it that's true. Uh, so that that's the other aspect I think of the conversation that we need to have in the broader pub with the broader public. Yeah. To to we have to listen to them sympathetically and 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 but but also say, you know, that we're really treading on dangerous ground here, and yeah. and, and for these reasons. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And and the, and the the ancients, you know, people from the past have an enormous amount to say because they they lived, and they, they died. Did. Yeah, and, and they and, weren't fundamentally and, different than us. That's, yeah, and, and and living is more than more than applied biology, you know. Yes. And, and so is medicine. I know. I mean, it's incredible. Yeah. You know, but but medicine is you know, art. You know, art and science have to blend. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. very true. Well, that uh, it's been really generous for you to spend all this time with us. I really appreciate it. Um, that may be sort of a climactic point to uh, to sort of sum up here. Yeah, it's been it's been a real pleasure chatting with you, and I'm I'm thrilled that you're uh, taking on this uh, conversation between faith and science because it is such a critical issue to address uh, at this time, probably more than any uh, time in recent history. Yeah, yeah, well, that's, we we are we are going through a distinct phase in human history where this whole you know, the exercise of science and just the, the machinery of being able to communicate our findings to one another, and leading us to be able to build up, you know, at such a rapid pace, the sort of stockpile of human knowledge and, and for the structure, structure of things to sort of reveal itself that way. I mean, unless we go through one of these apocalyptic scenarios that it seems that fiction is more and more obsessed with, um, yeah. we're only going to do this once. We're only going to go through this transition phase once. Uh, it's fascinating yeah. to see as much as we get to see of of where it goes from here. Absolutely. So, all right. Well, keep warm up there in uh, in in frigid Michigan, and you are you are heading to the old world uh, here relatively soon, I believe you said. Yeah, at the end of the week, we'll be traveling for a, a month of teaching in. Uh, Lebanon, and then uh, from Lebanon to Romania, Lebanon for another six weeks. Okay, okay, and that would bring you. You said a month in Lebanon and six weeks in Romania. Yeah. Well, yeah. So that'll be. Well, it's a late Easter this year. Is, is Easter? So the Eastern Orthodox Easter is one week later than Western okay. Easter. So we'll, yeah, we'll be able to get back in time for our for our Holy Week and. Okay. So, yeah, it's it's. Uh, <laughs> It's always interesting uh, to be uh, uh, outside the country during during Lent. It's, it's uh, uh, the Romanian people are very uh, observant, and so there are churches everywhere that you can look into for a lot of the services during Great Lent, which is very nice. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it would be a fascinating experience. Yeah. Well, it's been a pleasure talking with you, and I I hope this will be helpful to your listeners. 
yeah, I, I, I think they will. I think they will find it uh, very inspirational. So thank you again. Appreciate it.